When it comes to their kids, dads don't have favorites. When it comes to their tools, they do. And the Home Depot has every one of them. Top brands like Makita and DeWalt. Exclusive brands like Ryobi, Husky, and Rigid. Even Milwaukee. With an M12 12-volt 5-tool kit, now just $199. Today is the day for do it. And for dad. With the best selection of his favorite tools only at the Home Depot. More saving. More do it. Offer valid through June 19th while supplies last. This week, sensation, detection, zappity type towers. Could it be that we uncover the very roots of serialized fiction itself? I'm talking to Jen, Chris, and Dominic of Victoriosity. So strap in for an incredible ride. I learned so much from this conversation, and I think you'll dig it too. It's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Last week, we played episode one of Victoriosity, the steampunk adventure that has the internet a whir. I'm pleased to report that they have, as of this recording, achieved their base goal for their season two Kickstarter. But with two weeks left to go, there's still those stretch goals to shoot for, including the 9,000 pound goal. Murder in the Pharaoh's Tomb. You can find them and support them by searching for Victoriosity on Kickstarter. Which, ooh, reminds me, as long as you're knocking around the internet, consider changing your charity of choice on smile.amazon.com to Oral Stage Studios. That's the company behind the Audio Drama Network, the nonprofit that operates Radio Drama Revival and other wonderful shows. So if you go to smile.amazon.com, a portion of your Amazon purchases will go to Oral Stage. So that's A U R A L S T A G E studios. So search for that, smile.amazon.com. Okay. The people who make Victoriosity are extremely clever, kind, and very well-educated, as might be expected from a gang of Oxford boffins with a few doctorates between them. We learned so much from conducting and editing this interview, and you can bet I'll be checking out some of the books that Jen recommends. You should too. Before we get going with this interview, I should warn you that our conversation includes gentle spoilers? Not much plot is spoiled here, but if you've only heard the first episode of Victoriosity, you will definitely hear about locations and characters that appear in subsequent episodes. Consider yourselves duly warned. So, here we go with an interview with series writers Jen and Chris Sugden and series sound designer Dominic Hargreaves. Chris, hello. Hello. Jen, hello. Hello. Dominic, hello. Hello. Hello, you three. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for having us. us. So let's start off. I want to hear the story of how Chris and Jen, how the two of you met. And then Dominic, I'd like to hear from you how you met Chris and Jen. We met at university. We bizarrely both were looking for somewhere to live. And we happened to have the same friend in a house that had two spare rooms. We didn't know each other. And through that friend ended up in the same house and became very good friends very quickly. And then we fell in love. And uh, then sometime after that, got married. I have no memory of this. But, but, I, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I, I take Jen's story. No, it was, it was, uh, it was really interesting, actually. Just start, like being in the same house as someone and then just like, oh, okay, you're pretty cool. And like, okay, I, I, guess, we're, I guess we're dating now, right? Okay, yeah, cool. It was, it was good, yeah. I remember a, it more romantically. <laughs> I remember it very conveniently. <laughs> um, but no, it was great. We hit it off. Um, Jen gave me an education in British 
British comedy, like TV comedy that I, that somehow I had missed growing up. I had never seen that much Python. I'd never seen what the Python crew had gone on to do afterwards. And Jen had this enormous library of it all. And, and it, I just, it just blew my mind. So that, that was, uh, you know, a, a shared sort of experience that, that uh, I think um, might've sealed it. And you introduced me to American comedy, Saturday Night Live and oh, that's right. that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. So were you both interested in comedy writing? Were you already doing comic writing by the time you were undergraduates in college? Not that much, actually. I'd done some at school. Um, when we came to uni, I didn't do that much as an undergrad. I had a, a brief period of thinking I could write seriously, followed by realizing that I could not. Uh, and, and, and and like I learned that quite quite quickly um, after a couple of just terrible plays, and uh, that that was that was fine. And then turned my hand back to comedy. And when I came back in to Oxford and did uh, my graduate studies, I got involved in local improv, and that turned into sketch writing uh, with Jen, and that led on to eventually the the podcast. So Dominic, let's let's turn to you. How did you meet this wacky couple? So I met them both through Amateur Theatre Connections in Oxford, a mutual friend and performer in Victoriosity, Ida, put us in touch, I think, originally when they were working on a sketch comedy show, which at that point, uh, I didn't know what I was myself in for. Um, but I had a great deal of fun with them doing uh, both sound design, lighting design, all sorts, really. Oh, was this the, the Fringe show that you did? Or one of the Fringe shows yeah, that you yeah, did? Yeah, absolutely. We did. Yeah, that was, that was the first show, was the um, Bulletproof Jest. Yes. And I, I remember... I don't know who gave you the direction, but like, I'm sure you were asked at one point, to, like, Dom, Dom, can, we, can the lighting be made more political? Can it be political lighting? Is that, <laughs> is that a thing? You understand the lighting, Dom. Help us out. That's what we're trying to do here. This is what Absolutely. he had to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was quite an organic process, I think it's fair to say. And uh, it always has been. Is that what most of the sound design cues look like for you, Dom? Is it like, can we make this horse sound or can we make this fall or could we make this machine more... More political. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think by the time we got to Victoriosity, things I think they mostly left me to it. Is that fair to say when it came to the detail of the yeah. sound design? I think we realised we had no idea but, what we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. we're, 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 I think as far as we got, were sort of explaining what we meant by the parts of the script that d described yeah. the sound design. Yeah. I mean, for me, working on uh, Victoriosity was a, was a big departure in from theatre sound design. So. Figuring out how to interpret a script and, and put it all together was, was quite a challenge. But it's lots of fun. So I want, I want to know about the genesis of this project and how all of you decided to get into audio fiction specifically. So the original sort of start of the story of what became Victoriosity was, uh, it was when Jen and I, again, were doing our graduate studies and I... I, I, I seem to remember it being related to reading uh, The Invisible Man, which I had never read before and I was just blown away by. And this led me off into a little sort of experimental drafts of short stories around the theme of what became even greater London, this advanced Victorian city that we set over the, the whole of uh, the south of England. But it didn't really go anywhere. It was much too ambitious at the time for the writing that I could do at that point. And um, we sort of put it aside and then went and did all the sketch comedy and, and uh, theater comedy that we, we've talked about. And then after that, um, we were looking for a new project and I think Jen and I talked about it and a podcast seemed like a, an audio drama seemed like a good idea uh, because we wanted to try and reach a, reach an audience. We wanted to try a new medium. And we had this story on the shelf and 
Jen picked it up and made it a lot better. And then we, yeah, turned it into that form. Jen and Dom, how did you each get into audio fiction? What was the... I guess it's it's difficult to ask Britons that question, isn't it? Because like when I interview Americans, you know, it's either like, oh, well, we have this collection of tapes in the basement, you know. I mean, <laughs> you can even see it calcified in the name of this show itself, Radio Drama Revival. Like, like from my perspective over here, this is a resurrected art form. But for you, this is just something you could listen to in the kitchen. Yes, it's there's this really strong tradition in the UK of uh, radio drama. Uh, largely on the BBC. So we grew up with, I grew up with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is one of my favorite shows ever and has been a big influence. So I've always loved it. And we did a lot of live writing. And I think for Chris and I, we love live performance. We still do it. We still write live shows. But one of the things is there's there's a lot of effort and energy that goes into those as well. And by the time you've kind of got to the end of a run of that, it's been seen by X number of people. But then you stop and then you write a new show. Whereas with audio drama, there was the potential there to reach a much wider audience and an audience that wasn't just in the UK. And I think that's part of the reason we were drawn to doing it. But it absolutely was something that, you know, didn't seem alien or impossible because of such the strong sort of tradition. And also because of podcast sitcoms like Wooden Overcoats that came before us who were absolutely fantastic and we love. But I think they made us think you know, this is possible. It's possible to produce really fantastic, high quality audio drama yourselves without having to wait for or hope that one day the BBC will pick you up and give you a series and do it, you know, with you. I think that's right. And I I think, David, your point about the radio drama revival, that, that was certainly how we thought about it to begin with. Audio drama was a term that we came to later as, you know, that's what the community, it's often how it refers to itself. From our point of view, I think it was, let's do a radio show, or rather, let's do something like the old radio dramas that we know from the BBC. It wasn't something we explicitly needed to, to call out because that format is, is yeah, it's, it's very well understood. It was like, oh, we're doing one of those. We'll just put it online. Yeah, well, what was interesting for me was actually that that tradition of BBC produced radio drama and what lots of people are producing on podcasting platforms now is actually quite different in some way. Like I, when I started thinking about how to produce audio drama, I went and, and, and looked at, at, there's a very small number of books on the subject and there, some of them are very, very traditional. And it's great to be able to throw some of those rules out of the window sometimes. But from a creative point of view, I mean, it was, it, yeah, I mean, I can sort of echo what, what Jen said about, you know, growing up with those favourites. Did you first encounter Tom Crowley through Wooden Overcoats, or did you know him separately and bring him onto the project? We knew him from having taken a show to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2015 is where we met. We were in the same venue. Our group was doing a show, and he was doing a show in the same space, uh, in the same actual theater, in that sort of sprawling complex that the Fringe seems to have. And he was like two hours after us. And uh, Jen, I think you were the one that, that sort of formed the first bond over sort of shared flyering experiences. Uh, yes. Well, we met we met him uh, in the underbelly and he flyered us for his show, uh, which we were going to go see anyway. And we went to see it, in fact, that day. And he was part of a sketch group called The Sad Faces. And their show was absolutely phenomenal, just brilliant. And he was hilarious. And I fell in love with him as a performer and comedian. And then he came to see our show and I think he liked it. And then we kept in touch after that. And yeah, and he read some of the first drafts of Victoriosity and was very encouraging. 
And um, eventually, I think we plucked up the courage to ask him if he would <laughs> like to be Inspector Fleet. And to our absolute delight, he agreed. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I want to transition to talking about the show itself uh, and the themes of Victoriosity. Sure. Because a, a lot of fiction that takes place in the Victorian era, especially stuff that at least nominally falls into the category of steampunk, tends to valorize empire. But I think Victoriosity does something interesting. It avoids those traps by making even greater London and Queen Victoria into these sinister constructs. Uh, what went into those decisions? Well, from my point of view, I think I think the subject of empire is just extremely difficult from from our point of view. It's it's not something we would want to approach lightly at all because you know it's one of our country's most terrible sins. Uh, so I think we weren't prepared to engage with that topic at all to begin with in, in the first series. We sort of just left it on the shelf as something just presumably happening out there in the world at the same time. Queen Victoria being this mechanical version of herself sort of just kind of arose out of the comedy of the of the conceit of um, the technologically advanced city. We thought, well, you know, why, why not her be like this as well? She she reigned over Britain for an incredibly long time, only recently overtaken by the current queen. And um, just the idea of her never really being able to give up the throne to anyone else just seemed quite quite funny. The 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 one that interested me the most was London itself. And the 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 idea of empire there is interesting because it did seem originally like it was just a it was a palette. It was an interesting palette to sort of draw on. And you know, we thought let, let's have this city that, you know, it never really ends. We can have, you know, whatever we want in it. It can be that kind of richness and just spread it forever outwards uh, across the country. But I, I'm sure there's a sort of psychological element to it as well because I don't know how familiar Americans would be with this idea, but people in the UK might be more so. But London does exert that kind of feel on the rest of the country. And I say this as someone coming from Yorkshire, which is a you know a big region up in the north with with big cities. But nothing in the UK is really even close to the scale of London. It's not like America, where you have New York, but also Chicago and LA and San Francisco and a lot of other large cities. There's nothing that even comes close to London in the UK, and it has this incredible uh, shadow over the rest of the country. Not in a not in a bad way, universally, but certainly a dominance that I thought it would be interesting to keep sort of pushing in, into a more physical way. Jen, do you have anything to add to to that idea? Oh no, I mean Chris has sort of articulated. Uh, I think all of my thoughts there certainly um the point about empire i think you've mentioned other points about how victorian sensibilities have been like something we've come close to and sort of worked with within the constraints of right like in terms of what we're valorizing about the past and what we're not yes i mean i'd say it's that kind of thing where it's an alternative past so this sort of this huge unprecedented technological um, advancement which has allowed even greater london to spread across the entire lower half of the country but at the same time it's the the series is very much rooted in victorian sensibilities so they are all the same and i quite enjoy playing with those ideas often we're poking fun at them but i think you're right i think some of them are quite sinister yeah and i think i, I mean victoria and albert is really based very much on their relationship that they had. I mean, Queen Victoria famously mourned for a very, very long time after he passed and absolutely adored him as a man and as a husband. 
But at the same time, I think that the relationship between them was very difficult because she was a woman and a monarch, but he was her husband. And traditionally, the husband would have been the head of the household and in charge. But that power dynamic is inverted in their relationship because she is the queen. And and we know from her diaries that that relationship, whilst very, very passionate and very loving, also at times was frustrating, I think, for both of them. And so we thought it would be fun for Albert to be trapped inside her body, um, his consciousness <laughs> trapped inside, uh, to see that sort of uh, tension play out within them. Sure. I think that's a really fascinating way to physicalize that relationship. Yeah, I don't I don't know where the idea came from of actually let oh yeah, you know what, let's just put him inside her. I don't remember how where that idea came from. It doesn't seem to flow organically from anything in particular. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either, actually. Well, if if Albert doesn't die, if he's trapped in an eternal state of undeath, then it kind of makes Victoria less sympathetic because she can't mourn him and he's kind of functioning as like a husband battery. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I guess it, it was an extension of what happened to her, and and you're right, it, it, it does take away that sympathy of her being uh, a widow uh, of mourning, uh, you know, and you know they have this bickering relationship, which is just, um, you know, a, a, a bit of fun, but also the idea that he is literally hostage in her body and doesn't feel that great about it is, you know, um, an interesting undercurrent to 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 a marriage, I would think. I'm I'm very curious about the great white hunter trope that you play with, uh, with Whitlock. He has this honestly quite terrifying monologue in episode three about the panther. Oh, yes. In the Malay jungle. Yes. Can you tell me at all about where that character comes from and what you wanted to play with with that character? So this is going to seem less uh, insightful or interesting, but I, I don't remember doing that deliberately. It's it's general explain like our different writing processes, but sometimes it'll just be like, oh, we need this character. You know, he's the he's the head of the warders, right? He's a baddie. He's going to do some bad things. We need to introduce him. And you know, I, I was thinking about that speech in terms of we're introducing a very important character. And we need to really kind of like make sure he 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 takes over the scene. And I don't remember writing the story. You know, I started him off on like here's a man who's going to introduce himself and then start telling a story designed to sort of exert dominance over anybody listening to him. And so it, it just kind of flowed out of that. The, I mean, the, the, the Great White Hunter part of it, I guess, is also playing with that time period of these people going off and, you know, doing what some would call adventurous, but you could also read as, you know, terrible things in other parts of the world. And um, him... It, it just seemed interesting and uh, characterful to have him sort of express all of that at the same time and sort of relive it in this very visceral way to uh, terrify the audience. I mean, his immediate audience, I mean, rather than our audience. For me, it works, I think, partly because drawing on that trope is important for that character because I think those characters come with certain assumptions that they tend to be characters that, that are very domineering and feel like they should be given things and that their authority shouldn't be challenged. And um, it's made very clear, particularly through the names. I don't know if that translates, but Skiffins, Basher, Rupp, whatever their names yeah. are, are, very public. I mean, they all sounded Etonian to me. They all sounded like public school. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. That's, that's deliberate. And so you're sort of casting him as that kind of person who's gone through that education, who would have the means and the money to go off and do these sort of in inverted commas sort of uh, adventure 
things in that very arrogant, very white, very mm. um, empire-driven Victorian mindset. And I think that is important for the character of Whitlock because he is somebody that, you know, will not suffer challenge that wouldn't probably give second thought to whether or not what he's doing was right or wrong. Um, he would just assume that it was um, right and that he knew better than other people. And he is, yeah, absolutely has that that real arrogance whereby he can tell a story that lasts, I don't know how long that speech is, but probably about three minutes in order just to kind of terrify someone and have that control and that command that I think, yeah, you would associate with a character who's clearly entrenched in those tropes and ideas. It just sort of seems like that's how he approaches every problem. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, yeah, and the story is apropos of nothing in particular, right? It's It sort of comes out of nowhere. It does have a payoff in terms of you can't do what you think you're trying to do to me. But it is an abrupt conversational shift of the type only somebody with that kind of character would even attempt. It's not in response to anything. Yeah, I think, I feel like the joke of that scene relies on maintaining this very dire, spooky mood for several minutes with Fleet suddenly interjecting and breaking the tension. And that makes me want to ask how the two of you manage tonal shifts as writers and Dom, how you manage a tonal shift as a sound designer. How do you decide here's where I'm going to make it scary and here's the inflection point where the punchline happens? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think often we know in terms of each scene, because in in, in essence, it's an, it's an ongoing drama, but I think we primarily think of it as a comedy. So we know what has to happen in a scene and we'll sort of plot the scene out and we'll know, okay, this dramatic moment has to happen and we'll sort of write it out. But often... In order to, I think there are these moments where we think, okay, it's getting a bit heavy now. So we need a moment of levity here because otherwise it will get too serious. And we'll sort of insert a, a joke there. It's sort of a, a feeling or a sense of it. Yeah, I, I think with something like the speech like that as well, it's like, how else can you get out of that, right? It's a comedy that follows the plot structure of a thriller. But, you know, when we do dig into the, the, the very dramatic, we need a probably a sudden way out of it, right? A gradual way out of it might, I don't know if it would have the same effect. Maybe that would have more of a dramatic effect than a comedic effect, right? Like, you know, essentially we're just trying to surprise people over and over again. That's where a lot of the comedy comes from. So, you know, a rapid switchback from something like that, particularly with a, you know, an inane sort of interjection, you know, is a good way to snap people back to, uh, uh, you know, okay, we're back in the room, back to how things were before this story, which was absorbing. But I remember... Dom, the, the speech as well, I remember that like you did do something to the sound around it, right? Like to kind of absorb us into it. Yeah, so that was one very interesting scene from the point of view of thinking about the natural ambience of this bizarre rainforest inside the tower. Right? What does that sound like? Is it a big place? Is it, a, is it actually an indoor space? Is it a, an outdoor space? And a very subtle adjustments to how that ambience progressed during the scene, I think helped with the drama a bit. And just dropping in little little effects along the way, you know, when he goes to his peak, you discover that actually there is a rainforest and there are creatures there, and oh, the birds actually the fly away. Are rea- yeah, right. the creatures react to the to, to the to the madness. Yes, um, but getting that scene transition from the previous room into that room took a long time because yeah, we didn't know to start with what it was going to sound like. Yeah, that was one of those ones where we just threw you completely in it. I think we were like, okay, we're in an office yeah. with someone and now we're in a rainforest. Yeah. And from our point of view, it's kind of like, we want to make it sound interesting and varied. You know, it's it's not enough to have the drama. It's not enough to have the comedy. We need to also layer on interesting locations and backgrounds. So let's have a rainforest. Okay, Dom, go. You yeah. know, <laughs> one of those. 
Oh, it was great fun as well. So, Jen, you've got a PhD in Victorian literature, and Chris, your doctorate is in science and technology studies. That's right. Uh, right. Let's talk about how that plays into the show. Uh, Jen, let's start with you. Well, <laughs> fairly obviously, um, it's set in the Victorian period, albeit a changed one. Yeah, so I think so various ways. So I think it always was going to be a detective story. Uh, Chris sort of had the idea of a man running towards a tower trying to stop a plot. I think that was one of the sort of first grains of the idea. So he started talking about detective plot. And my PhD uh, is in Victorian literature, but specifically it's in the development of a sensation and detective narratives. So I was very keen to develop the detective aspect with Chris. But I didn't want there to be that sort of Holmes-Watson dynamic, although we did know we wanted a duo. We didn't want the kind of the genius detective. We wanted more of an equal pairing. Tell me about Wilkie Collins, because I don't know, I am completely ignorant of this person. Oh, Wilkie Collins. Yeah, so, well, he was a Victorian sensation writer. Some So sensation fiction is fiction that has its heyday in the 1860s. And some see it as a precursor to detective fiction, but it tends to be fiction with a mystery. Now, that mystery doesn't have to be that sometimes the audience are aware of who the bad guys are, and it's a case of the good guys sort of exposing the bad guys. That's true of The Woman in White, which is possibly one of the most famous sensation novels written by Collins. And the mystery is more uh, sort of around figuring out how the crime has been perpetrated, or it can be a mystery where we don't know who the guilty party is. And that's true of The Moonstone, also by Collins, also a very famous sensation narrative and described by T.S. Eliot as the first English detective story. So, yeah, I think because I've read so much sensation fiction, that the, the story must be influenced by that. And it's, it's probably why it's not just necessarily a straightforward detective story. It's also got these sort of layers of mystery and intrigue and plots and conspiracies because you find a lot of those in sensation fiction. And sensation novels are heavily, heavily plotted. And sensation novelists tended to um, plot very carefully. And uh, we also did that. The, The plotting of the narrative took a very, very long time trying to piece it together and to make sure that it all made sense. So I've definitely been influenced by that. And I'm also, although it doesn't form part of my primary research, I'm also very interested in and lecture on the position of women in the Victorian period. And I was really very keen to have a protagonist who was a woman who was not what you'd expect from a typical Victorian protagonist, as there are many Victorian protagonists in actual Victorian novels who do not necessarily conform to what people at the time or even now we might expect from a Victorian heroine. So Clara in particular is inspired very much by a lot of my favourite heroines. So Jane Eyre, Maggie Tulliver from Mill on the Floss, uh, Valeria Woodville from Collins's The Law and the Lady, which is a fantastic novel and everyone should read. That's a sensation novel. And she's a detective, actually. She uh, she's not an official detective, but she discovers that her new husband uh, was once accused of murdering, poisoning his first wife after she's married him. But it's the case is in Scotland and the verdict of not proven, which was peculiar to Scotland, was given, which basically means we think you did it, but we haven't got enough evidence to convict you. So you're sort of living in this 
sort of purgatory where everyone thinks you're guilty, but you're not in prison. And she believes in his innocence and takes it upon herself to piece together all the evidence and prove his innocence. Um, and she's a fantastic character. And I think Clara very much is inspired by her. And also some people know, but a lot of people don't know that even before Sherlock Holmes, there were female detective stories. The female detective is one. There's the lady detective and uh, Loveday Brooke. So in the 19th century, you are getting female detective stories. And so I was very keen to have a sort of female detecting figure alongside our more traditional police detective hero. And I've also read a lot of police detective stories that come before Holmes where, you know, it is he is, Fleet is a very good, very competent, clever detective, um, but he's not infallible like someone like Holmes. In a Comedy Scribe Monday Twitter thread that you did with Eli McElveen and Sean Howard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's fun. Jen, you talked about the Victorian era as this period of great social change and upheaval. And you mentioned that there were some some varied, sometimes fraught responses to all the change. I'm curious about what those changes looked like and what fraught responses emerged as reactions. Oh, God, that's a massive question and, and could have a sort of a, a multiplicity um, of answers. Um, so, well, See, this is the thing. Before we started recording, remember, we said that this was all a long con to get people to attend your lectures. Yes, so, exactly, absolutely. exactly. This is where this is um, the cell. This is what we're getting to it. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, you're living in a period, in the Victorian period, which sees unprecedented uh, social change. You know, you've got huge geographical migration to urban centres in a way that we haven't necessarily seen before due to the effects of industrialization. You've also got people's concept of time changing because of the railways that come in the 1840s and the landscape of Britain is basically being carved up and suddenly a journey that, you know, would take you days in a, you know, horse and carriage can now take a day or less. Um, because you can do it by train. Um, also, instead of letters, suddenly you get the telegraph. So you can communicate with people you know, from London in Scotland almost instantaneously. And in fact, from England to America. And this has just been impossible before. And it sort of blows people's minds about you know, what is this world we're living in? That, that, that actual concept of time changes. I'm trying to think of something that we could liken it to in our living memory. And I think maybe the internet, the introduction of the internet might be similar. And also alongside that, you're getting huge advancements in, in science and our understanding of the way in which the world works. You've got uh, Lyle's principles of geology, Darwin's origin of species, and also, you know, sort of challenges to religious faith as well. So I think people's understanding of who they are and their place in the world does begin to, in some cases, sort of break down. And what you can see is in a lot of journalism, particularly journals, there's, particularly in after mid-century, there's an explosion of publications. And that's partly to do with the abolition of taxes on knowledge, which is a duty on paper. 
and also on newspapers are removed so it becomes much cheaper. What a dire sounding thing, a tax on tax knowledge. On knowledge. Right. They, they get abolished. God. Um, I think in the 1850s, I don't have my notes with me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 1850s. <laughs> um, and um, suddenly you get like a proliferation of journals and newspapers. But the journals in particular, they, they publish a lot of fiction. I mean, that's very popular. But alongside that is being published, you know, articles on travel, news, historical figures, political events and ideas. And of course, different publications targeted at different markets focus on different things, for example, uh, or might have different bents. But there's a lot of overlap and I've read a lot of them. And there seems to be this preoccupation with kind of understanding, trying to make sense of the world, a sort of obsession with it. And that can be as small as there's a series in the Cornhill magazine where somebody goes traveling and they will sort of try to very neatly describe exactly what the city looks like. And they'll go climb up the tall buildings and sort of take a bird's eye view and try and describe exactly what the city looks like. Or it might be an article on the Telegraph and trying to make sense of that and how it works and trying to explain that to readers. And a lot of literary critics, for example, read Sherlock Holmes as a response to a sort of public feeling, sort of a general sort of feeling that the world is sort of increasingly chaotic and a place that we don't quite understand because things have changed so much. Another thing is we're we're moving far more into a period where relationships become guided by economic interest rather than sort of more long-lived relationships when geographical migration was much less. So instead of relationships between you know, tenant farmers and their landlords going back generations and being based on sort of patronage downwards and loyalty upwards, suddenly the bonds between man are economic. And then you get into like Marx and Engels and the idea of the cash nexus and Thomas Carlyle. But then suddenly, so people's way of understanding their relationship to other people has changed as well. And there's a very, there's an anxiety, I think, that runs through Victorian fiction and Victorian nonfiction where people are worried about, you know, their lived experience and do they really know other people and I think a lot of Victorian novels explore that question of identity as well. So somebody like Holmes, you know, the short stories aimed at a commuter market. You know, you can the short stories can be read in a uh, one sitting because suddenly you've got trains where at the end of the century where people are living in suburbs and they're commuting into work, whereas much earlier on in the century everybody was sort of you know would be able to walk to work. You know, people will buy from the railway store, you know, stands W H Smith or whoever you know, a copy of The Strand and they'll read, you know, the latest adventure of Sherlock Holmes. They can read it on the way to work, finish it on the way back. But in this kind of chaotic, sprawling city and world that that's increasingly incomprehensible, suddenly, you know, if, at the beginning of those stories, you've got somebody that comes in to Holmes saying, I don't understand what's happening to me. And actually with Sherlock Holmes, a lot of them, most of them are not crimes. They're just somebody coming and saying, I don't understand. I can't make sense of my reality. I, you know, I was in love with someone and then and they seem to be really interested in me and now they've disappeared. And it doesn't make sense. My reality doesn't make sense. And Sherlock Holmes will investigate. And then at the end, everything will be explained. It will make sense. Everything will be made sense of. And that person's, that character's understanding of their place in the world is reestablished and reaffirmed in a way which is comforting to a reader that is experiencing rapid social change in a way that 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 possibly challenges them in terms of who they are you know you've got cla- again class class boundaries are, are becoming increasingly fluid in in a way that hasn't happened before 
So I think those stories offer a bit of comfort to somebody trying to make sense of their lived experience in that time um, of such social upheaval. That's that's really cool. And I also, I never thought about Victorian commercial fiction being designed to be commute length. You know, like obviously I've been in podcasting for a decade plus and the, the comparisons between serialized print fiction and serialized podcast fiction are evident to me. But like even, even to the level of designing this unit of entertainment to last as long as a train ride is something that people talk about now. And that that just kind of right. yanked the floorboards out from under me for a second. Yeah, it's good. I mean, one of the one of the criticisms that gets leveled at fiction like this, and in sensation fiction as well, which would have been largely serialized to appeal to commuters as well as a wider audience, is that it's a, I think a, a critic called uh, Mansell criticizes it and says, you know, it's it's hot and strong, but it's ephemeral. It's not like a you know a, a good nineteenth century realist novel by someone like George Eliot because it you know, all it's doing is is stimulating the senses for us. And sensation fiction comes from the idea that it's, it is stimulating your senses and it's making you on edge. It literally, in Victorian period, sensation carried the primary meaning of uh, sort of electrical stimulus, but also referred to kind of uh, sensational headlines in newspapers as well. And that often the stories were based on those. But it's often criticised for being like trash fiction. Oh, that's why Clara gets in trouble for reading one. Oh, yes, of right. course. I know, I mean... Seriously, like one of the reasons for committing someone to an asylum would be reading a novel, um, a woman reading a novel. This is listed as one of the reasons people get committed. Um, and uh, there was a huge concern, public concern about women reading sensation fiction because they thought they would be corrupted by it. Of course, it was very popular with women and great female writers of sensation fiction like um, Mary Elizabeth Braddon and everybody should read her fiction because it's great. But what's interesting to me is that it is sort of dismissed in a way as as not being really sort of literary or whatever. But what are we still reading? We're still reading these now. Is Sherlock Holmes one of the most popular set of stories? And I think they have incredibly useful and interesting things to teach us. So the critics were wrong. They were not ephemeral. <laughs> yeah. That, that to me was, I mean, which I learned secondhand from Jen and all her studies. It's one of the most amazing things to me, like out of all this, was just these books that we hold up as being like amazing examples of literature that are now it's like, oh, you must read this. This is an important landmark in English literature. You know, at the time were trash. Um, <laughs> they, they, they were like, oh no, these are published weekly in the papers for commuters. That That's not actual literature. Whereas now- it absolutely is actual literature. And it's incredible to think that they were ever thought of like that. It just and that's blows why my we mind. Should never dismiss anything as well, right. You know, as not as not literary or worthy. You hear that, podcast haters. You hear that? Yeah. <laughs> Chris, I want you to tell me about wirelessly transmitted electricity. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> What, I think we all want to know this. Chris. What what um what would you like to know in particular about wirelessly transmitted electricity? I'm I'm curious because great even Greater London feels like a dystopia, even though there's this giant utopian structure in the center of it providing free, limitless energy yep. to everyone. Yes. Um and I want to explore that that conceit and maybe some of the techno utopianism of the like late Victorian era that explored wireless electricity. 
For sure. I mean, like it must have originated in the real example of this that very nearly happened. The I think it was the, called the Wardenclyffe Tower that Tesla attempted to build somewhere on the eastern seaboard of the US. You know, like Tesla and Edison had this epic battle of the currents, their different mechanisms behind transmitting electricity to people. And, you know, they, they would, uh, well, Edison more would engage in these incredible shows uh, to sort of demonstrate the superiority of his. So the, the, the wireless tower, the, the Wardenclyffe Tower, was an attempt to do that. I, I don't know if it was a proof of concept, or, but it, it never made it off the ground potentially because it was unfeasible in reality. But it's just an incredible romantic idea, partly because of of, of the sort of electro-utopianism of it all, partly because of the Victorian gigantic industrial engineering challenge of it, which is just inspiring. And also because, yeah, because of what you said, of what it does to the surrounding area. Like, to me, um, I don't know if, if we'd ever thought it was exactly because there is free, limitless energy that this city is somewhat dystopian. But I mean, it's certainly related. I mean, I think the reason why the city seems like that, like it wouldn't be utopian, is probably uh, maybe an assumption on on, on my part that, you know, that's what's going to happen unless you try very hard not to let it happen. That, that, that's what happens because power structures develop, people are ambitious, uh, cabals will attempt to do things, governments will attempt to do things, people will attempt to do things, cities are complex and random and have destructive elements uh, as well as positive elements. And, and you know you can't govern that effectively in all ways. So you end up with something complex. You, you, you don't end up with something utopian because to have that utopian system w- would require something far beyond what what is actually being put in place here, which is just electricity, right? So the electricity is fantastically useful, but by itself, it just can't can't do anything. And this is like, to return to a previous point, you asked about my background in science technology studies. This is a field that is essentially focused on the relationship between science and technology and society. And in particular, our relationship to science and technology and our impressions of it and our narratives about it and our counter-narratives about it, about what counts, what as science, what does not count, what counts as good technology, what does not count, and how these things propagate around cultures and societies. And I think the history of that says that you, you don't you don't move neatly from one good thing to the next good thing. What you have is a highly chaotic mesh of people and organizations and technologies and uh, suburban commuter rail timetables and patterns of fiction publishing. And they're all intermingled through time in a way that's highly unpredictable. So I think the concept of even Greater London that you end up with through that, partly because of that and partly to be fair, just because it's probably more interesting and funny to write, is that it is unimaginable, unimaginably complex, and just cannot be contained by the imagination. So I think, similar to what Jen was saying about how people thought really about industrializing and urbanizing Britain, like our vision of even Greater London was, no one can really wrap their mind about it. It it hurts to even try, because this technology has been unleashed on a society that it's not that it's not ready for it. It's just it causes a rate of change that no one can really cope with. And a lot of the narrations and descriptions, and particularly 
fleet's outlook on this society because he's sort of seen it happen is a reaction to to not quite being able to cope with it and just trying to keep your head down thank you dominic i want to turn to you Hmm. i want to know about how you develop the chunky mechanical sounds of victoriosity because the the technology all sounds so physicalized and dangerous and i know that you you have training as a scientist and so I'm I'm curious in your discussions with with the other members of the creative team how you develop the sound of this particular Victorian England. So I mean the, the starting point is is uh, is the descriptions that were given in the script by the writers, which were pretty vivid in some cases. Uh, I mean the locution machine, this strange adaptation of well, you could think of it as a kind of Victorian Skype. I think we started calling it. Right. You know, it, right. It's just it's it's got this amorphous blob uh, kind of appears out of nowhere and develops an image and what does that sound like well we've no idea on some of those key effects actually we we had uh, some great collaboration from someone called john owen who also wrote the theme tune to the show and he's a very talented sound designer as well so i can't take all the credit for this but that was the locution machine but the city as a whole really sounds like any other city i mean we, we started out from the point of view of considering it to be victorian london and a lot of the background ambiences, the streets, the bars, the college, which turns out to be a train, you know, it, it sounds like a train. So I think the backdrops aren't necessarily very different to any kind of naturalistic setting, but it's it's the context that they're being put in that, that lends weight to them. I mean, the uh, to give another example, the flying machine that the group are attacked with or, you know, ambushed by, so to speak. I mean, I still have no idea how that thing flies or what it's powered by, but it was right. fun to just play with aeroplane sounds from different eras in history and tractor engines and see what worked. Yeah, I think um, often what would happen is we'd sort of put something, a description in, sometimes a bit more well described, but often just, you know, this is a device on it and it happens. And uh Chris and I had no idea what it sounded like. I'm not sure we even imagined ourselves what things would sound like. And then suddenly Don would come back with just his version of it that he'd put together and we'd be like, yes, that, amazing. But right. it, And that's really why, you know, Chris and I write the words, but, you know, really I consider the show to be sort of co-written with Dom as well because, you know, the sound design is so absolutely crucial in bringing the world to life and it tells a story just as much as the actual words do. So really, Dom is, you know, just as much a writer as we are, really. I would say there's, I think there was only one sound effect which you outright rejected from the script. Um, (laughs) Like, like we cannot have that, we're not doing that, which was sleeping birds. We didn't end up with the sound of any sleeping birds uh, because we felt that was... Yes. impractical and we, tried we it, agreed it, we, it, it we wasn't integral it. to the script and our wonderful actors were very patient with this yeah yes. they Mo- gave it a good go <laughs> molly beth morosa who voices some of the ravens uh, and is also the wonderful cabbie and miss waverly and she's a fantastic actress um, we did make her record the sound of sleeping birds um which didn't make it in but is just one of the most beautiful uh glorious things i think i've ever heard um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. i'm keeping that for all time i can imagine her doing that too <laughs> It was an excellent go. Yeah. In the end, we didn't do a lot of Foley in the studio, but we did a little bit. And I think that gave people the uh, the idea that as they were doing the recording, they were actually creating something that was more than just voices. What were some of the, the things that you did do in studio? Uh, it was mainly the, ev- the ever popular sound designer's story of footsteps. You know, we spent some time recording footsteps and I used, you know, 
Some of them. Uh, on different material. <laughs> no, darling, you, you used all of them, all of my footsteps walking along yes. different, uh, different, different shoes, surfaces. Different surfaces. Yeah, gravel beds and paving stones and all the rest of it. We had a, a wonderful old-fashioned Bakelite um, telephone, which was completely authentic, that we borrowed from somewhere. Yeah. Giving money, change yeah. and stuff Just, like that. And then some of the more unreal scenes were the scenes in the ice caverns, let's be honest. Uh, I mean... <laughs> but, but Why that in particular? <laughs> I guess I guess it comes from the fact that I, I I it just sticks out as something that in the sound design process it was very fun to work on and ah, from yeah, the yeah. point of view of not knowing what, at all what it was going to sound like before I started playing with sounds and playing with effects I don't I don't I wouldn't say I have a process you know I, I'm in a sense new to the game but really taking all sorts of inputs ideas from other people transforming them. Uh, mixing them up and, and eventually get into somewhere that is believable. I mean, at the end of the day, it's part of the storytelling is the sound design. So when when I think of Victoriana, I also think of the vast overseas British Empire. And I, I think that steampunk offers great opportunities for picaresque adventures, both within England and without. There are so many rich opportunities to puncture empire. Do you do you intend to go beyond the shores of Albion in season two? Well, um, season two, we do actually go uh, beyond the boundaries of England, to be sure. That said, um, the, the question of what's going on in the rest of the world is something that uh, we don't have an answer for quite yet. It's something we kind of, it's kind of in the back of our minds. Like we have an idea of what America looks like at this time, potentially what New York looks like at this time. You know, it's hard to imagine that England would be like this and nothing else would be affected at all. There would there would be some kind of reaction to that incredible economic growth and that that strength. But yeah, in this series we've played a little bit more with what's going on on the continent in, in Europe, rather, and that that sort of tension, which is very, very slightly alluded to in the first series and comes out a little bit more. In the next one. Oh, right. The the southern borders of the UK only extend as far as warning shots from the French, right? Yes. Right. Exactly. That kind of thing. So we're now in the process of, well, Chris and Jen are in the process of finalizing the scripts for series two, which is incredibly exciting. We had a read through with some trusted colleagues a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to be launching a Kickstarter to fund series two in a couple of weeks' time. Or from, by the time this now, is by the time this is yeah. broadcast, it may already be up and running. But um, so so that's one thing uh, that we're we're really excited about because yeah, having spoken about all the amazing collaborators we had on the show, and I could speak for another ninety minutes on just how phenomenal. <laughs> no, seriously, how phenomenal everybody is, and you know, we talked about sound design and writing, but so much of it is in the delivery and the performances. They're just unbelievable, and and we want to be able to pay these people because um, because they deserve it and for, for all their hard work and effort and brilliance. Yeah, so it's really exciting to be doing this again and slightly terrifying, but... Yes, ah. we're all terrified. <laughs> it's all winding up again. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that you could take time out of your Friday evening to to spend time with me. No, it's, <laughs> it's, been, it's great. been great fun. Thank you so much yeah. for having us, David. Absolutely. It's been yes, a delight. You. you are welcome back anytime at all. Oh, oh thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you, David. What a pleasure. After the interview, I bought the entire works of Wilkie Collins, a collection of some 4,000 pages worth of text, for under $3 online. It's a single ebook volume. My Kindle anticipates it'll take me about 43 hours to read it in its entirety. 
Something kind of cool about Victorian fiction is that the copyrights have lapsed on all of these works, and so you can purchase these absolutely wonderful treasure troves of fiction for next to nothing. Ooh, speaking of a wonderful treasure trove of fiction for next to nothing, have I mentioned our Patreon lately? That's patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Just a buck a month gets you access to our ad-free early release Patreon stream and admission to our goofy and vibrant Discord chat channel. I keep thinking about what Jen said about the reputation of sensation novels, how they were unseemly or weird or inappropriate or a sign of madness in women or a silly frivolity. And I think we see a lot of that in the coverage of this medium, especially as regards indie creators. Just remember that someday, and someday soon, in fact, there's going to be a podcast equivalent of Jen's PhD in Victorian literature, like a podcast audio drama PhD. I bet several already exist. I bet some of you are listening right now. Hello. What is going on in this medium is simply put, incredible. It's inspiring and funny and scary and smart, and if you archive it correctly or you pay your hosting fees, it's forever. If you're a podcaster and you've got one subscriber, 10 subscribers, a thousand, whatever, you're doing what Wilkie Collins did, what Arthur Conan Doyle did, what Mary Elizabeth Braddon did, what George Eliot did. So, if you love this medium or you're making a work in this medium, ignore the haters and keep plugging away at what you're doing. They'll be writing books about this stuff someday. And now, credits. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreaux, the legendary hunter. One morning, he shot a leopard from nine different angles. The leopard was kind of nervous because it wasn't wearing makeup, but Matt got the lighting all perfect, and later, the leopard was really pleased with how the photos came out. Our interview's producer is Eli McElveen, legendary sneak thief and dog burglar. A dog burglar is different than a cat burglar in that a cat burglar sneaks in through the windows, but a dog burglar comes in through the little flappy you installed in the door. Sneaky little blighter, he stole my ham! Our associate producer is Sean Howard, the Wellington of crime, which is like being a Napoleon of crime, but instead of the puff pastry being all intermixed with pastry cream crime, it's wrapped around a tenderloin of crime that's been daubed with mustard and coated in mushroom duxelle of crime. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux, the Lady Detectives. They have all sorts of sensational detective mysteries which you can read about in Radio Drama Revival's newest non-existent serial, The Adventure of the Crimson Boot. Our social media manager is James Oliva, the official keeper of Radio Drama Revival's Flock of Ravens. They all warble around and floop a lot, but we're trying to train them to deliver podcasts to people. It... Look, James says it's working and I believe him, okay? Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouge, a reclusive genius whom no one has ever seen in the same room as me. Have you? By God, have you even seen me? What if I'm not real? What if I'm your host, David Reinstrom? And this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Time for a refreshing glass of water brand water. Water. It's liquid. When it comes to their kids, dads don't have favorites. When it comes to their tools, they do. And the Home Depot has every one of them. Top brands like Makita and DeWalt. Exclusive brands like Ryobi, Husky, and Rigid. Even Milwaukee. With an M12 12-volt 5-tool kit, now just $199. 
today is the day for doing and for dad with the best selection of his favorite tools only at the Home Depot. More safe, more doing. Offer valid through June 19th while supplies last. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and lead gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.